I've never gotten mail. I've roasted my own camps, Lincoln Farm, kin- to a Quaker Kinderland, camp. and because Farm and Wilderness so many times that nobody writes in in solidarity. I think when you go to a camp where everyone had to be naked, people don't like to talk about that no, that's later <laughs> in life. Maybe with a therapist, but not with podcast hosts. Amazingly, they don't do that in 2021 the way they did in 1983. <laughs> this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Mark, you're in person. <gasps> I could reach out and touch you right you're now. You're actually here. We're if a little I... far for touching. We, we are, <laughs> I think we actually are six feet away from each other, inadvertently. <laughs> we can touch, but everyone reach out. Perfectly. But don't you, uh, don't hands, change your position. Hands across, right. And don't actually touch me. <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we are in person. We are at the podcast studio at Stand Up New York, the comedy club on the Upper West Side, where Josh Cross has positioned us. But we're recreating listening it to be Jewish about it, Argo Studios. For today, Stand Up New York is Argo Studios. Because no no funny Jews have ever played this room. (laughs) The first in-person recording of Unorthodox since the before times, since... uh, I'd say in two years. Yeah. I think Milton Berle was our guest the last time we were were live in person. And Dick Van Dyke was the Gentile President Reagan was uh, on the line. This coming Sunday is Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av. It's the day of Jewish mourning, which commemorates so many tragedies, including the destruction of the temple in the year 70. And in that light, we bring you an interview with Jory Epstein and Max Glaubin. Jory is the author of The Upstander, which chronicles Holocaust survivor Max's mission to stamp out intolerance. Also, an interview that Stephanie did with Menachem Kaiser, whose book Plunder chronicles his own search into his family's Holocaust history. But wait, Av has another holiday, a funner one. Tuba Av, the, the two to your two. The Ides of Av, which is the Jewish day of love. It's sort of like our, our Valentine's Day, kind of. So in that light, we spoke to unorthodox listeners Sabrina and Brian Carton, who ran into none other than actor and heartthrob Jeff Goldblum while taking their wedding photos this past weekend. As you will know from social media, he joined in the fun and serenaded the couple with sunrise, sunset. But the big news is we are recording in person, so we can we can check in, and if we have sad stuff to share from our own lives, we can hug it out afterwards. I do have to say, like, the whole theme of, like, being in Jewish summer camp for Tisha B'Av is something I totally missed out on, and I didn't realize how pivotal it is. If you went to a Jewish summer camp, Tisha B'Av is, like, etched in your mind as this, like, weird, sad day where you, like, probably watch Holocaust movies yes. and maybe wear white. They read Echa, and they, like, sit around with the candles. But here's the thing. You have to go either all eight weeks because then you'll definitely, if you go both <laughs> sessions, you catch Tisha B'Av, or if you go in a year when Tisha B'Av falls in the first session, the first four weeks, like this year. But there are kids who never get the Tisha B'Av experience because they only do the first session. And they're like, camp is fun. Like, yeah. Right? What are you talking about <laughs> sitting it. around in morning? Well, the Tisha B'Av experience is extra. <laughs> you have to pay extra. You have to. It's another hundred and eighty dollars for it. In a I, sense, it's another. It's another couple thousand dollars for a second session. Right. Uh, Leo, what's up with <laughs> and, you? And therapy, uh, because when you read Eicha, you realize there's there's some eating of babies in that book. Eicha, that book is not not for everyone. Lamentations is so because for I went to the Lamentations they did in Pittsburgh the year after the shooting, and that was very very moving. And when you actually sit and read the text of Lamentations, of like yeah. You know, then they did this to our wives and daughters. Then they did this to our babies. Like, You're like, yeah, I'm not hungry anymore. That is the darkest part of the Torah. Nothing is quite beats that for like, wow. Yeah, but that's like something out of the Saw franchise. <laughs> We've been through some stuff. Leo, what's going on with you? So last night, I had the privilege of going to see Team Israel beat the New York Boulders, which is actually a kind of a decent team. I don't even know what sport, what sport this are we is. Talking? Yeah, ba- we're, we're talking baseball, of course. The New York Boulders? Yes. Uh, Wait, the Israel baseball team is here in team New York? Team Israel is en route Are they to, based in New York? to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. <Are> the, <laughs> they're basically... <laughs> it's, it's totally a bunch of guys from Yeah. 
Some of them work for Barney Greengrass and do not appreciate you, Mark, right now. I got now. no mail. They have no mafia at all, <laughs> apparently. Uh, team well, Israel. so good. You, have, you don't even know no, it. What is it? <laughs> so, like, don't show up next Team week. Israel, as some very kind of rabid fans already know, and the rest would sort of scratch their heads with puzzlement. Team Israel actually qualified for the Olympics this year. In one baseball. Of, one of only six teams in baseball wow. that actually made it to Tokyo. Team Israel, however, when you read the kind of, when you listen to the rest, it's like, Danny Valencia, Ian Kinsler, Chaim Ben Chacham It's like 700 Americans and like literally, O'Shaughnessy. literally two Israeli-born guys. There. The rest like made Aliyah. Okay. So they're here as part of like a training slash goodwill slash yeah. fundraising slash… Well, it's like all the exhibition games here. Exactly. And then they go, Just I'll go over. On, on the way to, to Tokyo. And they played in Pomona, New York. So about 40 minutes from here. If you wanted to rob houses in Englewood last night. <laughs> every single Jew, every single Orthodox Jew, I should say, in America, or at least in the dry state area, was at the stadium. It was pouring green. Can I just say, I drove through Teaneck last night and I have never seen fewer cars on the road. <laughs> it was like ever. And now I know why. It's, it's tumbleweed going everyone, through the street. Everyone, Teaneck, Englewood, Riverdale, everyone was at the game. It was pouring rain. It was like a two and a half hour Sam rain. Sam Elliott had a piece of straw in his mouth. He was whistling an old timey <laughs> Western tune down the street. It's the absolute best. First of all, the game was sponsored by Turo College School of Dentistry. Right. So Turo being the college for the Orthodox, where oh, you can get oh, separate no, no, men's no. and women's the, classes. The second one after Yeshiva University, please. Eh. Let's let's tell that to Turo. Let's have things, you know, in perspective here. But you walk in and instead the of like, college school oh, of here's like a, a bobblehead doll or like a jersey or like a beer cozy or something like uh, here's floss. And a toothbrush and some toothpaste. Oh my God, oh my God. This is already the Tomorrow's most game is sponsored by the Yeshiva University Accounting Program. Exactly. Actually, they're going to give you a so slide roll. You start the game. And then, you know, this guy comes on, who's clearly part of the Boulders organization, kind of speaking in this like sport announcer. The voice, Boulders like, are what? A double A team? Are they a, it's what are they? I think the Frontier League, which is a partner league of the MLB. It's guys on the team are recruited by what do they play? Major League Baseball. Oh, Pomona, New York. Where's that? But Rockland County. Okay. Oh, about, okay. About 45 minutes. Oh, okay. From, from it's okay. in Ramataviv. Got it. It's we, totally we don't up. recognize Wait, anything. Wait, so who won? It's up in Jewsville. Team Israel won 7-1, but that's not the story. The story is that the game begins. The guy comes on, on the PA. They only had like, one baseball, but it managed to last all. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for waiting out the rain delay. It is time for some a great night of baseball here in the New York Boulder Stadium. But because you guys are Jews, now it is time for some national trauma. So we will play a movie about the 11 athletes who were murdered in the Munich Olympics. Wait, what? And literally like record scratch out. Like everything stops and they play like seven minute long documentary that ends with a minute of silence, which on the one hand, so charming, right? Because the Olympic Committee fucking still refuses to recognize this heinous right. you know, crime and its part in making this possible. But on the other hand, man, I came out to watch some Baseball. Right. My kids are here. I, you know, hot like, what, what are you doing? Like, why do I need to watch like a documentary about slain athletes? But then the game begins. Danny Valencia, really great player, gets on double to like far right field. If Mashiach himself, if the Messiah descended from heaven on a white horse, the applause would not the be applause louder. The applause would be lesser than this. <laughs> it, it was like it was like the state of Israel being born slash <laughs> Sandy Koufax like. Riding like a, a minotaur. It was amazing. It was like the Sandy Koufax riding a minotaur. That was a brilliant podcast moment. That's where your mind went to. <laughs> it is. It was like it was like a transcendent moment. But perhaps the best, best, best moment. So the game occurred 
during the nine days, right? The nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av, where you're not allowed to eat meat as sort of preparation for, you know, all the sadness that's going to come. However, there is, of course, a loophole, which is if you finish some bit of text, like a book of the Bible or a tractate of the Talmud, you have a special rabbinic dispensation to eat meat. Therefore, at 6.45, conveniently 15 minutes before the game began, there was a siyam or a ceremony to commemorate an ending of whatever it is that you happen to have read or not read. Everyone congregated in a playground, did a like makeshift siyam, said the blessings, and then the line to the hot dog stand was like people who'd never seen meat in their lives. It was like such a beautiful- There's also people who'd never read a page of Talmud, but this day they claim to have finished but you know what? a tractate of Talmud. I thought about it. No, it's actually kind of a genius loophole because there were people who'd never read a page of Talmud in life, but like the hot They're dog- like, Wait, I get to get the hot dog exactly. if I do the thing? Right. It's incentive to Hand go me and that actually book. study a page of Talmud. I can have so, dessert if I eat my broccoli? <laughs> good for us. This is the genius of Talmud. That's Mormon-level genius, right? I know. That's, that's like- freaking fantastic. That is fantastic. It was just the Jewish thing. And then, and then to top off the already impossible, like, goodwill and like and it was pouring the whole time we were sitting there like soaked but the new york folder does not employ bat boys they employ bat dogs every time <laughs> a player you know throws the bat and runs the bases there are two beautiful adorable australian shepherds named jalapeno and pepper who run grab the bat in their mouths and retrieve it to the dugout. That's it's some serious union-busting shit. Amazing. They've just, they've, <laughs> literally. They haven't they're even robots. Replaced, right, they haven't even replaced with robots. They're replaced with they've automated it. Australian they've cattle, automated it. cattle dogs. So Jesus. Team Israel, 7-1, looking strong. Game got rained out or called, rather, in the fifth inning. But go Team Israel. It was a delightful <laughs> moment. And we remember the 11 athletes. Slain in the we never forget. So I got one more thing before we move on to the news, the actual news of the Jews, which is we had some people call in with some autocorrects, some Jewish autocorrects. They were pretty good, mm-hmm. but I'm going to Bigfoot them and say that I tried to, I was writing to one of you and I tried to type in Schwanz and it came out Savant. <laughs> well, you are Schwanz sh- Savant. News of the Jews, N-O-T-J News of the Jews. We have two big stories this week. One really big story is the Nazi COVID references just keep on coming. We have we have a roundup this week. You know things have gone. No, it's Tisha B'av. You know it's the month of Av when you have a roundup. Our old friend Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Florida Congressperson, compared Joe Biden's vaccine push to Nazi era brown shirts. Just weeks after she and Liel had a had a had a tapoon after they no, after I'm they, sorry I'm sorry actually she didn't say black shirts she, she said, didn't say the SS she said the SA she learned something in the Holocaust Museum why is this better because it's like the farm team of the SS it shows that she knows the deep cuts now right basically I she's see, not saying oh there were the Yankees she's like oh the New York Boulders right. uh, Nazis <laughs> it's great Holocaust education works it works it works Fox News is Tommy Laren <laughs> if that's how she says her name says that flight attendants who are enforcing masks on flights are quote Nazis of the air Nazis of the air that's from my nightmares <laughs> <laughs> I believe they actually had a name if she'd been to the yeah. museum she would have known they were the Luftwaffe right? <laughs> right. I mean, there's actually a, a real name for Nazis of the air yeah, Tommy come on man <laughs> it's not an imaginary thing. There were Nazis of the air. By the way, that is a great Broadway musical. (laughs) Nazis Nazis of of the air. And this one is just (laughs) fabulous. This one is just amazing. Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert, who's a new friend. She's never, we've never had occasion to cite her. The gun and the masks. I don't even know. But she said, quote, 
Biden has deployed his needle Nazis to Mesa <laughs> County. This was a tweet. And needle Nazis is great enough. Had she stopped there. It would have been enough. Dayenu, right? Needle Nazis, right? Needle but, Nazis. Right? Again, there were real needle Nazis. Mengele was in fact, a needle, like if she had Holocaust You're bringing Mengele to Mesa County? <laughs> but then she goes on. The people of my district, she says, are more than smart enough to make their own decisions about the experimental vaccine and don't need coercion by federal agents. <laughs> Did I wake up in communist China? So she actually thinks the Nazis are communists. Like to her, all of world history is just one singularity of just like- The uh, Biden brown shirts. Here's the thing. We now know that something like 65% of American Jewish millennials don't know what Auschwitz is. We have Congress people who think that communists and Nazis, who are basically each other's mortal enemies, are actually the same people. They're just all bad, 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 bad. What are we going to do when everyone is stupid? This actually, by the way, was, what was this? Oh, the other it's a Mike question Judgment? of when. The, the, what was the other Mike Idiocracy. Idiocracy. What happens 20 generations from now when everyone is just stupid? I mean, look, it's entertaining, but it's horrible because it you're is. like Nazis of the, I mean, it's, it's really bad because I think there's been a lot of conversation about sort of like, don't call people Nazis. Like, I think, by the way, I think this started with the soup Nazi. Oh, you're going to blame the, Jew, blame the Jewish Seinfeld writers. No soup for you. <laughs> I think the proliferation of like, Nazi, like right. you hear it. Don't be people, the shower Nazi. Yeah, what if yeah. I don't want a shower? Don't be a shower Nazi. Which is confusing because a shower Nazi is a right. very specific thing. They, um, <laughs> that's right. There were actual shower Nazis. Yeah. They told you um, you're going to the showers. Oh, there are a bunch of them. <laughs> divisions of but them. But it's weird because you're like, we, I remember people used to be mad being like, don't desecrate the memory of the Holocaust. Stop calling people Nazis for like random things. But now like everyone's a Nazi. Okay, can I say something? Yeah. I mean, are you asking permission? I for should the first say, time in your life? there's a sign on, on the wall. What is your unpopular opinion in this room where we're recording? <laughs> Let me share that unpopular opinion. The Nazis were so freaking preposterous from the get-go in a way that when you look at literally every other kind of massive totalitarian movement, none was as stupid or ridiculous and like really just ludicrous as the Nazis were. Like you look at the fascists and up until a certain point in time, you're like, everything about this makes perfect sense, which is why FDR, for example, looked at Mussolini and said up until... Mussolini joining up with Hitler for reasons that, you know, shall well, remain. The, the needle Nazis. Shall remain nameless, you know, looked at, at Mussolini and said like, oh, I, I actually love a lot of what this guy's doing. Like Franco is just, you know, a totalitarian dictator who took over. Stalin, you can understand that. Hitler, like it is so incredibly bizarre and everything about it was just so gross and icky and stupid that from the get-go, the Nazis were the original Nazis, you know? Yeah. Like the idiocy was baked into like the camp, system. It's like camp-esque. Because no one said, oh, look at those, oh, look at those Franco, look at those Soviets. Like no one uses these metaphors because the stupid wasn't baked into the DNA. But I think what you're saying is that the Nazis are the bagels of, of the world, yeah, right? Yeah, they now belong they're, to everyone. Yeah, they they're belong for everyone. To everyone. They're just a free-for-all metaphor you're, you're for whatever it is Again, that you want They're like to the aristocrats joke. Like everyone's going to tell it. I just think this is crazy. It is, it is really, really, really But upsetting. I do have an argument that this is like, I, I think I fall on the other side of like, you're not, you're not like trivializing the Holocaust by saying needle Nazis. Like if everyone's saying Nazis about no, everyone, I mean, that's a fair we're never going to forget the Nazis. That's, that's a fair point. I mean, that's again, why I, thought, that's why I thought Lauren Boebert really just did something special because it's saying like, there are all these needle Nazis. Did I wake up in communist China? <laughs> like Germany, China, I mean, Singapore, I wake up in India. communist China? Like Biden, why are you being such a Fidel Castro? Right. <laughs> you know, like to her, all like, of you, all of you know what she's basically- Drop your Darth Vader vibes and <laughs> continue- 
The way the kids these days think that we grew up in the age of the Beatles and also the age of, you know, the Civil War, that everything before like 2000, <laughs> oh, everything before the iPhone that? was actually one old timey moment. I, to her, it's like the bagels, the Nazis, Mark, the, the Roman senators. I'm the, convinced that anyone born after, say, 19, when were you born? 1987. Anyone born after 1988 <laughs> uh, has zero understanding of like how history actually works and thinks that everything that happened before the moment of their birth yeah. belongs to a period called history. History, yeah. yeah. And therefore, it is completely no, possible studies. that like Alexander <laughs> the Great and John Lennon lived like, at the same time. In they were both in well, the Dakota. It's also like, the fact like that there are people in their 20s who think that we're boomers. Like actually, boomers are our parents. You know, the, but they, there's nothing more boomery than saying you're not a boomer. That's exactly right. 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 Like <laughs> all of them. We're, we're all just, elderly. We're, we're all elderly. Oh my God. All right. Before we turn to the interviews of the week, I did want to say that I'm very into the Jewish Telegraphic Agency's quadrennial list, or now it's biennial, I guess, of the Jewish athletes to watch in the Olympics. And I have a favorite. I have someone I'm going to root for. I'm tuning into sports this summer. Okay, who? who? Uh, Israeli surfer Anat Lelior, who no doubt is a national heroine in Israel, right? Everyone knows her name. She's on Wheaties boxes, no? Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. But she's actually Israel's first and only Olympic surfer. Here I'm quoting from the great JTA. Surfing's new to the Olympics. Only 20 men and 20 women are competing this summer. And she is the highest ranked female surfer from Europe because for the purposes of surfing, Israel is European. By the way, I am I am very surprised to hear that surfing is new to the Olympics because when I think of surfers, I think, you know, disciplined, dedicated athletes who, you know, wake up early, train very hard, pursue the Olympic glory. Well, now that you're all, now that your sport is Irish hurling, Liel, I, I'm not listening to you on sports anymore. What, what, what is my county? Mayo. County Mayo. Go County, county, county Mayo. Mayo. Sam for, Mayo for <laughs> right. Sam. Uh, Sam for Mayo. order the t-shirt. By age 12, Lelior had won the Israeli National Championship. She's an IDF veteran or Probably, I don't know, you're always, in, you never leave the IDF. No. You can check out, but you can never leave. And um, she's from Tel Aviv. She's your Lonsman. And I'm just, I'm super into her winning the Golden Surfing. And she has a blue and white VW microbus that she'll be parking in Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is great because she and all of Team Israel's baseball team, they can all go to the Wise Sons. That San Francisco deli has an outpost in Tokyo. I have that t-shirt, of course, I know. From, our, can... from our San Francisco show. I wish Wise they and Sons. all could be Herzliya girls. Um, that's amazing. I have to say there are a lot of Jewish fencers fencing Always. for Team USA, which I'm really into. There's Eli Dershowitz. The Harvard guy. Don't don't think it's Dershowitz. It's Dershowitz. Dershowitz. There's no O. There's no relation. His frat brothers definitely called him Schwitz. Dersh. So he's a saber fencer. And then there's also... Jake Hoyle, who Who's is a epic. cyber fencer who <laughs> just plays online. No, but Hoyle is a foil fencer. No, he's an epe. Oh. What were you? Uh, I was foil. And what are, like, the epes, they're douchebags, right? No, no, no. There's not really. There's schwanzes? No. I don't know what it is now, you know? What, like, what are I don't the stereotypes? Know. There's not really any. No one cares enough to make stereotypes about fencers. <laughs> I don't know. They're all nerds. No, just kidding. Fencers are awesome and in peak physical condition, and I'm really excited for all of them. <laughs> I love watching fencing at the Olympics. And Liel, you're, you're rooting for Team Israel in baseball, right? I'm rooting for Team Israel in baseball. I'm rooting for the Mets. <laughs> the Mets. <laughs> rooting for the Mets in the Olympics. I have to say, I want to start a new campaign. There's one last bit of news that I want to sneak in. And this is from the New York Times. And the, the article is titled, This Moth's Name is a Slur. Scientists Won't Use It Anymore. And basically, this article is about the Entomological Society of America. They are no longer referring to common species of insects as gypsy moths and gypsy ants because these names are derogatory to the Romani people, obviously. But, you know, like, they, they have their, like, really long species name and then their shortened name. So, right. like, I'm I'm all for this. No gypsy moth. I mean, it's like when you realize, like, gyp is actually, like, a really bad. Yeah. You're like, oh, my God, gyp is short for gypsy? And, pe like, it's, it's like, like people say Jew. Jew, yeah. Yeah. On so, the other hand, the Jew bastard moth is well, so, still well, alive so and well. this is my thing. So I want us to start a campaign because, look, there's the Jew's ear, which is like a mushroom, right? Really? 
Yeah. yeah. The Jew's yeah. ear. There's Jew, Jew vine, right? Or something, or Jew creeper or Jew. Well, some, there's the wandering Jew. The wandering which Jew. Which is the plant. Got and, it. And no one, it's like, they all kind of have anti-Semitic origins. Some people say they don't. Instead of the wandering Jew, then, we should call it the Netanyahu from now on. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't he still in the prime minister's residence getting his jacuzzi service before he leaves? And then there's the Jews harp. Yes. Right? Like, let's just, why can't we, let's just change those two. Listeners, Or write, write in and tell me that actually none of these to, are offensive. To the Jews harpo after Harpo Marx. <laughs> the Jew harp should obviously be called the David Broza. The wandering Jew should be <laughs> called Leibowitz Vine. Right. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's my, that's my plea. I think that's a good thing for us to that's take on. That's the mission on. you're on for 5782? Yes. Yes. Menachem Kaiser is the author of Plunder, a memoir of family property and Nazi treasure. Stephanie interviewed him at a live event a little while back. And so that's why this recording starts with Menachem Kaiser doing a live reading from his book. And then they move into Stephanie's questions. We knew that my grandfather was the only one in his family to have survived the war that his parents and his siblings had been murdered, as was nearly all of his large extended family. But as knowledge, this was dark matter. We knew nothing about his pre-war or intra-war life. We didn't know which concentration camps he had been in or what his father had done for a living. We knew nothing about his parents, aunts, uncles, cousins. My father and his two siblings, let alone my generation, would be hard pressed to tell you the names of my grandfather's siblings they wouldn't even be entirely sure of the number. We knew they had died, but we had no idea who they were. We did not know where they died or how they died. And so when my grandfather died, they died another sort of death. I went to Poland for the first time in 2010 for reasons that had nothing to do with family history. I just finished a research fellowship in Lithuania and was spending Rosh Hashanah in Krakow. But once I was there, I felt I should go to my grandparents' hometowns. It seemed like something I should do. Less an obligation, really, than etiquette. When you're in town, you visit your relatives and say hi. When you're in Toronto on your grandfather's yard site, you go to his grave and say psalms. When you're in Poland for the first time, you make the trip to your grandparents' hometowns and take pictures. You go, and for the rest of your life, you can say you have been there. You describe this as memory tourism. Can you tell us what exactly you mean by that? Yeah, I was sort of using this, the term in the context of memory tourism as like people like us who are sort of going back to, you know, the Heimland, places they've never been, but are still sort of firmly established in their, their legends or their sense of history. And so, you know, I had never been to Susanovich, no, my family had never been to Susanovich, but in a sense, it's kind of where I'm from. And that's like a, a kind of a place and a kind of coming home to that I was really interested in and really wrestling with and sort of investigating what that means. And like the sort of, I'm a tourist to this place, but I'm not a regular tourist because I'm not really that all that interested in like the restaurant, so to speak, or the sites. I'm interested in my particular story. And so it's sort of, there's like a layer on top of the place that I'm more interested in, which is its memory. And it sort of gets really tricky to start talking about that. Like, how does that memory interact with the physical geographical place? And like, I got more and more interested in exploring those questions. It's true. You go to these places and you want, you want some kind of reckoning with them. You want to understand how you relate to them because I've always felt it so strange. You know, when I was in Poland, I called my paternal grandfather's sister, who was the only, at that point, the only remaining Holocaust survivor left in our family. She has since 
passed away. And I called her and I said, I'm in Krakow. I'm going to go to Zavier Chet. And she said, watch your pocketbook. And I was sort of like, oh, actually, it's very different to, to come from a place where your family actually doesn't really necessarily want anything to do with. I mean, what did your family think about when you sort of started the bureaucracy, the, the process of restitution that we'll, we'll get to? I mean, what did they think? Would your grandfather have wanted to do this? I mean, would anyone have wanted you back there? That's a good question. You know, one of the things I really struggle with is trying to sort of relate to what my grandfather wanted. Like I never knew him and like what his desires and his fears and his sense of leaving Poland very permanently were never really articulated to me. And so like I sort of struggle, but also sort of really hold firm to my ignorance. And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm not going to know. With my more immediate family, I think there was a kind of bemusement for a while like, again, it wasn't, we didn't really have that sense of return passed down. Three of my four grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and it was obviously a big part of my identity, but it was a completely undetailed part. There was never any emphasis on their story because none of us really knew it. And so the idea of going back to Poland was something that was viewed as nice, but by no means an obligation. And so, like, I started spending a lot of time there and then started doing these legal battles to reclaim the family property. And there was a sense of like, this is interesting and potentially something, but there was, I would say for a few years, a kind of amusement, like, let's see how this plays out. So my case is not a restitution claim exactly. So in Poland, it's one of the only, I think one of the only, or maybe the only country in Eastern Europe that doesn't actually have any restitution laws. So if a property was taken or nationalized, there are no legal mechanisms to get it back. My claim, on the other hand, was a relatively straightforward inheritance claim. So basically what we were saying to the courts is, my great-grandfather, this guy Moshe Kaiser, he owned the building before the war and he's still the legal owner. And so we were trying to update the registry. You know, right now, if you sort of look online and look at the deed, it's, it's technically ownerless. So there really isn't a disputation as to who owns the building. We were just saying update the registry and then my family, sort of that tree should get established within the Polish court. So Moshe Kaiser died, it should be passed to his son. And then he died, it should be passed to his children and et cetera. And so I had sort of these two tracks. You know, the first track was sort of, establishing the deaths of everyone who had died in the Holocaust. So there were no records at all. There were no death certificates. We had no details as to where they died or how they died or when they died. And this proved to be trickier than I had imagined. So to put into context, my great-grandparents were born in the 1880s, so they'd be between 130 and 140 years old at the time I was doing this claim. And so I sort of thought that would be a, a relatively simple procedure, and it turned out to be really complicated. There was a lot of twists and turns along the way in terms of, did we file the right claim? Turns out there's two kinds of death declaration within the Polish court system. But yeah, nothing went simply from the start. And this involves like taking out a newspaper ad, asking yeah. if anyone's seen this person who was born in the 1800s. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, it sounds really silly and on some level it is, but to me, I still have, I'm still sort of clinging to that generosity of bureaucracies will be bureaucratic. And so like, I don't know what the process is in Canada, let's say, or where I'm from, but like these things, their laws are going to be kind of strange and taxing no matter where you are. And so the question is like, I, I never really felt, the judge was really not generous. Did I ever feel like anyone was out to get me? Not really. And I saw a more difficult question was like, is there something systemic sort of like built into the system, even if everyone is well-intentioned, that's going to stymie efforts like mine? And that, that, I think the answer is yes. Like why, there should be a law that would help this move along, but there wasn't. I was like, and so the Holocaust is just this enormous rupture in continuity and like the legal system has a really hard time handling it. So again, 
even if all the actors, all the judges and the lawyers and the clerks, everyone's like working in good faith, you could still just encounter tremendous amount of frustration. There's this trope, right, of Americans or Jews coming back to these countries. Obviously, everything was very murky during the war. There's a lot of ambiguity there, right? Let's let's stay on that generous note. I mean, the idea of like a Jewish kid knocking on your door and saying like, this was my house. This is my grandfather's house. That's, that's sort of like a, almost like a boogeyman now in certain European countries, it feels like. Were you conscious of that while you were on this, you know, when you were meeting the people who lived in the building you thought this was? Yeah, I was, I was hyper-conscious of that. I think initially I had gone in, again, with this sort of default attitude of like, what was my, what was my family remains my family and like not really being conscientious or even really giving any thought whatsoever to the people who live in the building now. And then over the next couple of years, I encountered quite a bit of pushback on what I was doing, this reclamation. You know, people were accusing me of appropriation or being insensitive, and it really rankled. I really had a hard time with some of these accusations. And ultimately, like, it did move the needle. Like, I did relent somewhat. And not to say that my moral or legal right is compromised. I had a very hard time sort of expecting that. I was like, you know, the counterfactual, if my family hadn't been murdered, my family would still own the building. So like I, that claim to me was sort of preposterous on its face. But the idea of sort of complexifying the narrative and sort of like recognizing that these people have lives, that the building has a narrative that is not just my family's. And so I got more and more uncomfortable with sort of taking over a property without any knowledge of who lives there. And so I sort of worked up the courage and knocked on the door. And yeah, the first few people I knocked on basically slammed it in my face and they were older and uh, you know they see a foreigner i came with like a photographer and a translator they were very very suspicious but if, you know then i did meet people who were just unbelievably generous and open and sort of shared with me like their life story the story of the building and um you know initially i had lied uh, i'm not proud of it but i like had felt too ashamed to come in there and tell the truth I sort of made up this ridiculous story about being like a researcher and it was all technically true, but really a lie. But I relented. I like, I said, I couldn't keep that up. I felt too ashamed. And so I told him the truth and we, we developed real relationships and that took over two years. I've really spent quite a bit of time with some of them. And then I found out, spoiler, that I was in the wrong building. Uh, like that there was a typo. The first big twist in the book. Yeah. So there was like a typo in one of the documents and like the real building was down the block. And, you know, that one, I won't spoil for you what happens, but I sort of had to reface this moral quandary and sort of really take stock of like, if I had the energy and like the fortitude to go into another building and do this from scratch. And like, it's really hard. I think we like, from a distance, you read these stories and it sounds like an adventure, but when you're in people's faces, even if everyone's being generous, you're still like at the base talking about people's homes. It's really hard. It, it, it was just really taxing. But to answer your question, yeah, just I, the trope is a common one. It, there's been national elections, which it's been an issue, the idea of reclamation. There's a tremendous amount of Jewish property that's been given back to the Jewish community. And there's a lot of private property that has not. You know, when you're sort of in Poland and dealing with these things, the war doesn't feel all that far out. That's the thing. It's like, you know, in the U.S., it does feel more distant, really. But when you have like an actual building that belonged to someone, that narrative is like a lot leaner. This is an emotional journey for you, right? You don't know your grandfather. You're going back, but you're actually tied up in red tape. Like what you're doing is actually submitting forms. You're not doing like it doesn't feel super emotional, does it? I don't know. And like, I, that's my, a really honest answer because again, I didn't have a relationship with my grandfather. 
And so I didn't know him and I knew almost nothing about him. I don't know his Holocaust story. And I have the only the vaguest idea of what he was actually like. And so what I really, you know, throughout this whole, the whole story and the book, it's like struggle to articulate that meaning. It's there, but it's, it is very hard to articulate because it's not a personal relationship exactly. But like, yet I'm sort of, I'm, I'm reaching for the memory of him and like, I'm not quite getting there, but the reaching to me is significant in and of itself. And so while you're doing this reaching for, for this grandfather who you didn't know, you actually unearth, you uncover a relative that you did not know existed. And that gets us into sort of the other half of the memoir, which is really, I mean, fantastic. It is truly hard to believe. Can you tell us about um, Abraham Kaiser? Sure. You know, in order to explain Abraham Kaiser, I have to tell everyone about Nazi tunnels. And so these are, there are these seven underground complexes built by the Nazis using mostly Jewish slave labor towards the end of the war. These things are called Project Riza. They're in Silesia, which is in the southwest part of the country, kind of centered around a town called Vabzhech. And none of them are completed, but some of them are closer to completion. Those ones are enormous. We're talking square kilometers, 20 meter high walls. So the Nazis using Jewish labor built these tunnels. And what's very sort of strange and enigmatic about them is that there is virtually no primary documentation. We have no sort of documentary evidence as to what the Germans were planning to do with them. I mean, Looks like one more quick thing before we get to Abraham Kaiser. Sort of surrounding these tunnels is a very large subculture of so-called treasure hunters who are very obsessed with all things mystery. Anything that's unanswered, anything unexplained, particularly that pertains to World War II. And it's a very big community. The numbers, you could have like up to 100,000 people go out with metal detectors. And it's a very wide range of men. And it's mostly men. You have one end, just the guys with like metal detectors, even other end, very sophisticated, even sometimes sponsored expeditions. And so at the center of this, like what we they call culture of mystery are these tunnels and they are obsessed. And so these tunnels, they caught a little bit famous in 2015 when two of these so-called treasure hunters announced to the world that they had found the so-called golden train, which is a ostensibly legendary train full of looted Nazi gold that the Nazis had taken from Wrocław, it was on the way to Berlin, it got rooted into a mountain and it was buried there. And people have been talking about this train for 40 years. And a few years ago, these two guys said they found it and the world took them very seriously. So you had like the New York Times, the New Yorker, BBC, Fox News, Sky, everyone descended on this little town of Babzhech and they became very renowned for a few months. Now, here's where Abraham Kaiser comes in. Basically, because there is no primary documentation, there is a memoir written by a man named Abraham Kaiser he was a slave laborer on these, in these camps. He survived. And after the war, he borrowed a bicycle from the woman who saved him and went around to each of the camps collecting these scraps. He assembled them, brought them to an editor, and it was published as a diary in the early 60s in Poland. And this diary, this memoir, which translates as Behind the Wires of Death, has become a sacred, like a near sacred text among the treasure hunter community because of its details of the tunnels. And so I would meet guys who like, I've read it 40 times. I'd meet people who have followed his pilgrimage from camp to camp. He's accorded like a, really a kind of reverence. It's really kind of amazing. And um, where I come in is, uh, you know, I was just heard about the Golden Train and I was just like, this sounds weird. I would never heard of any of this before, like you, Stephanie. And I was like, this feels really compelling. I was doing an MFA at the time in fiction. So I was like, this sounds like fruitful material. Uh, so I reached out to a guide and said, you know, could you take me for a couple of days and just show me this? I had no intention of like anything familial at all. And then she took me and then I met some of the treasure hunters and they brought me to some of the tunnels and it broke my brain. 
It was really kind of astonishing. And then afterwards, we were just sitting and having a beer. We were just having like a really fun talk, a really light talk. They were talking about things they found. They were talking about their day jobs, their treasure collections. And then at a certain point, my friend Maya Ip, you know, who was with me and who has a lot more chutzpah than I do, she asked a much more difficult question. She's like, you know, this is all really cool and macho, but what do you do about the fact that like all these Jews died? digging these tunnels because, you know, they're all very cool, the tunnels, but um, a tremendous amount of Jews, about 14,000 Jews died as slave laborers. And at that point, they got really sort of agitated. They started speaking very quickly in Polish and I don't speak Polish. So I was just kind of waiting patiently for it to be translated. But while I was just letting the Polish wash over me, I kept hearing my last name and they didn't know my last name. So they weren't referring to me. And so while they were at a certain point, I just kept hearing Kaiser. So I actually paused them. I said, what's, what's up? Who's this Kaiser? And they said, Abraham Kaiser, you don't know who he is. I mean, he's this great Jewish survivor. He wrote this diary and they explained to me who he was. I never heard of him. And then I ended up buying his book. And because of the legal work I had done with the building, I built out a family tree and realized that Abraham was my grandfather's closest surviving relative. He was his first cousin, which was, you know, in my family, kind of a seismic shift in our understanding of who had survived. And so like it went from extinct to not extinct. Like no one in my family had ever heard of him. And then at that point, I sort of fell into the world of the treasure hunters. They really sort of took to me. They really embraced me. They were so excited to have the kin of Abraham Kaiser. They sort of went with the story that I was his grandfather, that I was his grandson rather. At a certain point, I, I stopped correcting them. And so um, I uh, really went down that rabbit hole. And so this is where like the mind-bending part of this, this whole book starts. It all is. But so in addition to finding this world of treasure hunters, you also find more family members, right? Like you, you connect with his, his descendants. Yeah. So Abraham had a wife and a son before the war. They were killed in Auschwitz. But Abraham survived. And after the war, he eventually, you know, there's a brief period, which there's a pretty wild story. And he sort of stays with the woman who saved him for a few years. But afterwards, he immigrated to Israel and his sister had uh, moved to Israel before the war. And so Abraham got remarried, but he didn't have any children. But his sister, Necha, had two daughters, one of whom is still alive. And both of them have children. And I met almost everyone in that branch. And there's also a brother named Haskell. He went to Argentina before the war. And he grew up, he had four kids. Some of them are still alive. I'm seeing one of them next week, actually. He lives in Miami. And so, yeah, I got to meet a whole new branch of the family. So we're already getting questions from people who like are demanding to know, did you reclaim this, this property? I'm not going to ask you that because I don't want to actually give away a big part of the book. And also because in so many ways, it's ultimately besides the point. So I want to know how your conception of who you are, where and who you come from. I mean, how did that change by the end of the story? I mean, the story as it ends in the book, obviously, you know, things may have continued since then. The, the way I've like, come to understand it is that it's sort of the reverse of a lot of people's stories. As like a lot of people sort of like, they have a really firm idea of what they're going after and then they either get it or don't get it. And so either they feel like they have redemption or failure. Like I have sort of like an earned ignorance. Like I didn't even understand the questions I was trying to ask before I spent, you know, five years trying this and then trying to write a book about it and then sort of like ending with nothing concrete, but sort of like the material in order to articulate those questions. And so I have nothing satisfying to offer except like my own frustration, which you know, I hope rings truer than like a neat linear ending. Towards the end of the book, you really break the fourth, I mean, I don't know if you can break the fourth wall in a memoir, but you kind of do because you sort of speak directly to this idea of like the literary genre of 
grandchild goes back and and you sort of push back against the idea that like all stories should be should be buttoned up and you also express almost like a an enviousness of people whose stories were easier than yours right who grew up here who, who knew first of all the details yeah and and also who started ahead of you and then also yeah. got their, their their happy end whatever kind of happy closure ending you could get yeah I, in a way, I feel very lucky, actually. You know, I started in a story that felt familiar. Like, you know, here's this building, I'm going to go get it back and I'm going to either do it or I'm going to fail. And like, to me, that was, that was a very familiar arc and it felt very easy. But as it sort of like slipped away from me and I started making mistake after mistake and like errors and things that were my fault or my lawyer's fault or no one's fault. And I was just like a, a typo. There was just uh, like, it's just so many of those. The story became unfamiliar but I do think it became truer. Like it started becoming much, much richer. And I sort of like, it forced me to interrogate the meaning of what I was doing. And so like, you know, when I started, the building just felt like this prize, like this thing I I was going to reach for and maybe get it. But as that slipped away, I all of a sudden, like the building as a symbol became a much, much trickier question. And I feel weirdly grateful for not having an easy path because otherwise I, I just... Let's say it took two weeks, you know, for an extreme counterexample. What would that mean then? I don't know. I like, I guess it'd be like a good dinner table story, but like, I certainly wouldn't have been able to sort of probe the way I, I have. Yeah. It wouldn't have been a book that is sort of like a nice book length. It might've been like a short story. <laughs> it would have been like a pamphlet at best. Yeah, like you, you write something in that same passage that I found very compelling and a little bit surprising. And I'm going to read it to you and then ask you about it. Um, you write, there can be no completion, redemption, catharsis, because our stories are not extensions of our grandparents' stories, are not sequels. We do not continue their stories. We act upon them. We consecrate, we plunder. And of course, this book is called Plunder, and you sort of understand the connection to the, the Nazi treasure side of things. But it's so fascinating to me, like you're indicting us, right, for plundering these legacies in, in our own way. So what do you what do you mean by that? Um, I, again, I think I've grown up with these stories. I think they've become like very, very familiar of people sort of dipping into their Holocaust legacy. And then, you know, our age, our demographic, our generation sort of telling those stories. And I've always been very uneasy with that. Part of it, again, is like sort of that jealousy that like I never knew my grandparents. I don't know their story. I can't actually access it. I certainly can't make meaning out of it. And I can't like, I can't build on it. But I do think there's like, there can often be in some, in these types of stories, a lack of awareness of that void. And I think we sort of, yeah, I, I would stand by that statement. Like our stories are not sequels. You know, our stories are our own and they'll be as meaningful as they are. But there, there's like a real unknowable void between like what we experience and what the memory we're trying to access. I think everyone knows that intuitively, but I think sometimes in some of these books and films and television shows, it gets a little too close and a little too familiar and it does, I, it threatens to cheapen the experience. Thank you to the Museum of Jewish Heritage for hosting the event where I got to talk to Menachem Kaiser. Menachem Kaiser's mother would also like to remind you that her son is single. Yes, they went a little viral because she did. they did another Zoom event where she in the comments said, by the way, my son's single. If you know an eligible woman who would like to date Menachem Kaiser, we will pass <laughs> the word along. Send us the important details to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. You may or may not have an inheritance in Poland to pick up uh, <laughs> as, part of, as part of that arrangement. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. 
Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. You may not like this new mailbox song, but we haven't heard from you in so long. So we thought we'd get your attention, shine a light. Come on, pick up your pen and write. To the mailbox. Such a fine, fine box of mail we have this week. Stephanie, would you read the letter from Roni? Oh my God, I love this. I love this. Hi there. My name is Roni, and I am an Israeli who learned about your podcast from my American friend, Adam. My American friend, Adam, is just like the greatest thing. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah, my American friend, Adam. Of course. Following Liel's buildup, I went to try the Spanish burger at Burger Ranch. This is an Israeli burger chain, right? That you Booger, talk ranch. About. Booger, Booger Ranch. Booger Ranch. <laughs> it's Booger Ranch. Um, Booger okay, Ranch. And, and Roni can confirm what you said, which is basically that it's just a regular burger with extra pickles and special sauce. Is why it's Spanish. But the french fries are the main attraction in this meal, Roni says. They're shaped like spaghetti and taste like heaven. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. But Roni hasn't had Burger Ranch since the 90s and want to thank Liel from the bottom of their heart for reintroducing them to those amazing fries. Toda Rabah. No. My work here is done. <laughs> so wait, let's talk about these fries that I are shaped playing, like spaghetti. I was the long and game. taste like heaven. Are those like curly? Like is it a thin curly yeah, fry? Thin? I, no, I remember them actually as being sort of like, what do you call like curly cut fries? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I kind of thought they were that. I mean, I mean they, they might maybe be. Maybe they changed. And they taste, taste like heaven. Like, like heaven. I mean, the curly fries well, you know, are freaking amazing. You guys know what Sid's favorite food is, right? French fries? The potato. Okay. In all its forms. Great. The potato is your favorite food. So any new way that you can do the potato, Sid Oppenheimer wants in. So we may have to make a trip to Israel 
Just have the Bugaranj. The, the, the By the way, this is great because our next letter comes from an Adam. Who right. may as well be the American friend Adam like, that Roni is talking My Charlie friend Roni. <laughs> Greetings, all. I'll tell you why I'm excited, Adam writes. I have a shitty job, and the one redeeming quality is I can listen to my iPod for eight hours straight each day. This guy still has an iPod. <laughs> Already, we love you, Adam. I discovered Unorthodox, and I've been listening since the beginning. I'm into the 60s by episode number, November 2016. Yikes. And I'm loving it as much as I did at first. I was raised a Long Island Jew. Although I converted to being a Hare Krishna 40-plus years ago, I still love Judaism. Editorial comment here. Adam, are you the last Hare Krishna? I remember when they were right. in airports and stuff. You converted 40 years ago. Are you, what you don't tell us is, are you still running that that game? Are you still- My, my there sweet was a, lord. Is there yeah. still a vegetarian meal involved? <laughs> there or everyone is a big Hare Krishna festival at Washington Square Park a few weeks ago. But were there many Hare Krishnas there? Or were yes, there 10 there Hare were Krishnas? There were a lot of kids. I still love Judaism, Adam writes. So good. You're a Hare Krishna who still loves the Jews. We still love you, Adam. I have not listened to any recent episodes, so I don't know if all three of you, Mark, Stephanie, Liel, are still the hosts, but I'm looking forward to continuing through those episodes. Keep up the great work. Sincerely, Adam. So Adam will never hear this. (laughs) Adam, this is future us. We are no longer the hosts. Adam, you get a better job, but you can't listen to us anymore. So that's what happens in your future. (laughs) It raises like some deep philosophical questions. Like, if the Star burns out, but thousands of years from now, the podcast Adam, is still the going. the year is 2038. <laughs> okay. Liel, I think you should read the letter from my friend and schoolmate, Karen Kasich. I absolutely should. Dear Mark, Liel, and Stephanie, while listening to your podcast this week, I was elated to hear that you met in person at a restaurant close to my heart, Barney Greengrass. So imagine my disappointment when you proceeded to Dis, my beloved. To be fair, editorial comment, only one of us dis. <laughs> the me. other two will never it's dare the one you know this. IRL, Karen. To begin with, the name of this institution is Barney Greengrass, the Sturgeon King. So you need to order the fish. It sounds as if none of you ordered correctly. Again, only one of us ordered the <laughs> most goyish order I've ever seen at a deli. So far as the waiter announcing, who wants hot latkes? You are in New York City. There is no free lunch. Besides, I have been at Barney Greengrass when they come around announcing the hot latkes already. It's a thing. And no restaurant makes latkes as good as home chefs. You order and eat it because it's a fried potato and it's nostalgic. Admittedly, the waiters are surly and they do act like they're doing you a favor. But that is part of the whole charming experience. Your loyal listener Okay, so I get it. So she, I didn't realize. So what she's saying is they're they're coming out being like, the latkes are ready. Who wants them? Which is totally different or kind of different than what we were thinking, which was just they were like, latkes, latkes. They were like, the batch is out. Okay. Who wants She's like, also a saying if you walk thing? in and you order like white toast and a side of scrambled egg with mayo or whatever the fuck Mark ordered. It was rye toast. It was the most Jewish of breads. They said Jewish. It was the most Jewish of bread. It was a Yiddish of bread. I hear what you're saying, Stephanie. You're saying like back in college when Naples Pizzeria, when slices were fresh, yeah, the woman would come like, on the mic and say, slices are ready. And that meant come get your hot yeah. stuff. They're straight out of the oven. Get them now. Yeah. I hear you. I still felt like it was a con. I would like totally eat one right now. <laughs> uh, I crossed Barney Greengrass. Like you, this may be the last you ever hear from me. Soon we're going to find out that Mark Oppenheimer swims with the smoked fishes. <laughs> If you have a letter for us, write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. 
I get a great text from a friend who says, I know a young woman who is an NFL reporter in Dallas, and she just helped a Holocaust survivor write his memoir. Do you want to be connected? And I said, yes, please <laughs> connect me to those people. So you're about to hear my conversation with Dory Epstein, author of The Upstander, which tells the story of Max Laubin's survival of the Holocaust and the work he's done since. Max also joins us for the conversation. They are a very lovely, unlikely friend duo, and you'll get to hear the story of how they met and the book they worked on together. Welcome, Max and Jory. Thanks so much for having us here. We're excited to join you, Stephanie, and we're excited to speak to Unorthodox. It's a pleasure to tell people all about it so they will never forget. So yours seems like an unlikely partnership. How did the two of you happen to meet? Well, I, as a Holocaust survivor, was in Israel with my wife to see some family. When I got back, I was asked that they needed a Holocaust survivor to accompany a group of students that were about to graduate on a trip going back to all the horrible places in Poland and also a week in Israel. And on one of these trips, there was a young lady and a member of my synagogue and a very good, honest person. And everywhere I went, I had a shadow. The shadow was asking questions. Now, if you want to know what kind of questions she asked, when we went to Majdanek and we saw seven tons of human ashes without any glass on a building that looks like a mushroom with an entrance like the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, she asked me, are you family ashes in here? And I says, possibly, because that's where my family perished. And a part of the six million, because they not all died in that one concentration camp. So that is how I met her. And since that, since she is a member of our congregation, and on Sabbath we prayed, and she is a true Jewish person. So I decided that there is a truly honest new generation that needs to know about the Holocaust so it would never be forgotten. And how can they relate to the people at large through my experience? So I decided to spill the beans. <laughs> and tell her like it naturally was because we were writing the book in confidence and we all have a compartment in our body that has certain secrets. But there comes a time in your life that what you went through might be very educational for somebody else. So, Jory, tell me about this trip, this March of the Living trip, where you... See Max, he's he's sort of the survivor who joins your trip to sort of add context and, and sort of humanize this experience. So I go on March the Living and Max is our survivor. And it was really powerful because 
were going to these concentration camps actually at the sites of where these atrocities happened with Max, who experienced them there, including at the concentration camp Maidanik, where Max and his family were deported to in May 1943. That's where his mom was killed. That's where his brother was killed. And three weeks later, at a satellite labor camp, his father was murdered and he became an orphan at 15 years old. And so my classmates and I, this is in April 2012, were sitting on the wooden floor of a Maidanic barrack as Max is telling us some of his memories from these labor camps. And after one of the stories, when he talked to us about a moment of ingenuity that helped him survive, Max said almost offhandedly, I don't know if I've told anyone that before. Now, Max had told his testimony before, and he'd lectured time and time again, but this specific memory, he remembered in a different way being at Maidanic, and I think that's when it clicked for me. Well, maybe he hadn't told it again, but I need to make sure he tells it going forward. So by no means, at 17 years old as a high schooler, did we plan to write a book then, but I think I started, like he said, I was that shadow beside him asking questions with my notebook, trying to write it down so that at some point we could do something with the information. So both of you are from Dallas. You, as you mentioned, belong to the same congregation. You are part of the same community, though you are in different cohorts. So, so Jory, you go off to college, come back. When does the plan hatch that, that you guys are going to work on Max's memoir together? You want to talk about, like, the hand of God? So I moved, I graduated from University of Texas in 2016. I moved back. The weekend after I moved back is Shavuot, and I met Shoal talking to Max after Shoal, and he mentions he just received a new batch of records, and he was thinking maybe now that he has his memories and these historical documents, he should write a book. And I was like, oh, great. I just wrote this thesis, took an issue, made it human. Maybe I can help you, Max. And I wasn't joking in like a ha-ha funny way, but I didn't actually think I could do it. Again, this is the weekend after I moved back. It was one or two days before I start my full-time job at the Dallas Morning News, but it was something I was legitimately interested in. And then by August 2016, we were sitting at his dining room table and Max was outlining his goals for whatever. We didn't really know where it would go at that point, but Max outlined his goals of what he wanted to make sure this book accomplished. So Max, you've given testimony, you've lectured, you've spoken about your story. What was different when when you and Jory sat down to basically like capture all of it? What was that process like? Was it you talking, her writing? Was she recording? I mean, how, how did you guys start those sessions? She was recording and also writing, and then each thing was reread and authenticated by her. And it was funny how my memory remembered an olive thing. And just like oil comes to the top of water, her writing came to the top of the book. Jory, I'm so curious. I mean, you have this job. You're at the Dallas Morning News. Now you're at USA Today. You're covering like football, preseason, training camp. And then you're also working on this amazing and sort of intense project with Max. I mean, do you think this helped you as the budding journalist that you are? I mean, what did you learn from this experience? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that reporting is, sure, I need to understand the the game of football generally, but I think what I do is so much more about understanding people and trying to understand how you can build that trust, how you can get them to tell stories, one, to want to tell their story, two, to want to tell them to me and to know that they can trust me with vulnerable things and that I will guard that trust. And I think working with Max and trying to figure out the best ways to do that really helped me hone that skill. Some of the challenges in the book, I mean, two, I would say is one, the last five years, I was just terrified that I wouldn't be able to both 
get a book out that did justice to Max's amazing legacy while also getting a book out in his lifetime. And you never know. I mean, Max is 93 years old. Thank God he's in good health. And I tell him all the time, I need you till 120. You just never know when that's going to happen. And that was really stressful trying to make those decisions while balancing those two priorities. And then the other thing I would say is I had a professor review the manuscript for us a couple of years ago who said, don't pretend at the end of the book like everything's okay now. It's not. There's still trauma. And the more real you can be about it, the more people will connect with that. And I'm so grateful to Max and to his family that they were willing to talk about some of the difficult things in later years and make that really real. But that was something that I was always nervous about, that I was going to try and help Max frame it and contextualize it, but Max had to be willing to be honest and vulnerable and to share those things and and where is the line? So that was definitely difficult, but I, I think that the reception we've received on the book really speaks to how powerful Max's testimony is and his messages and his positivity, but also just how candid he has been throughout this process. Max and Jory, what's next for your friendship? I mean, you don't have to meet all the time to do these intense interviews or the edits. Are you going to still hang out with each other? Well, we're going to be friends and she's going to become a very famous person. I love this. So when when Jory is a famous writer, her first book will have been about Max Globin. She's part of your legacy. You'll be part of her legacy. I love this. And you notice on the book, her name is in larger letters than my name. She deserves it. Max and I have such a special friendship. That's, I mean, it's funny when I think now back to five years ago and back to trying to build this relationship and really not knowing what it means, where it would go and where it should go. Um, And then I think now it's like, I'll get emails at 1143 on New Year's Eve. Max Globin is waiting in your Zoom room. And I'm like, all right, I guess I should see what he wants to say. (laughs) Um, And we're just, we're chatting at all hours. Max, his wife, his children. It's kind of crazy how well we know each other now. I like to say, Max sometimes will call and then he'll be like, it doesn't sound like you're smiling right now. And I'm like, how do you know that? You can't even see me. And he like won't let me off the phone till he can hear me smiling. But I think that it's definitely going to be a special friendship for the rest of our lives. And I mean, I think both of us are changed because of it and we'll never go back to how we were. And that's really special, both because of the very profound messages and also the little things. I mean, like Max talking about how he researched online how to sign a book with jelly pens, but he had to decide, does he want blue or green? And if someone asks him to sign and they want to make a million dollars, he'll say, best of luck with your endeavor. And I'm like, where do you come up with these things? Wait, what did you decide, blue or green, to sign the books? (laughs) Well, I got a blue one. (laughs) The book is wonderful. Thank you so much, Jory Epstein, Max Globin. The book is The Upstander. Our listeners can get it wherever they get their fine books. And if you get to Dallas, Max will sign it in either a blue or a green jelly roll pen. We, we can handle that. Thanks for having <laughs> us on, Stephanie, and thanks to everyone who's, who's joining us on this Upstander journey. Friends, J. Crew. We have a very special treat for you in honor of the Jewish holiday of Tu Ba'av, which is the holiday for lovers. To celebrate, we spoke to unorthodox listeners and newlyweds, Sabrina and Brian Carton, who ran into a very special Jewish celebrity as they were out taking photos before their wedding. Have a listen. 
Ben, you guys got married recently. You had sort of something unexpected happen. Will you tell us what happened when you were taking your wedding photos in Brooklyn? Sure. We were taking some photos on Jane's carousel before our Ketuba signing. And I noticed my wife sort of uh, perk her head up. And I, I was looking out, um, you know, off to the side of the carousel, and I see this tall man with this black hat and a leather jacket looking so cool. And I said, is that Jeff Goldblum? And then I, I yelled, hey, Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> without thinking about it. I'm actually, I'm a celebrity publicist. So, you know, my reaction, my gut reaction was the wrong reaction. I don't like to do that. I don't heckle celebrities, you know, even if I really like love their work, I try not to bother them. You know, maybe I'll say I really loved this project and I'll leave them alone. I did the absolutely most, I had the most touristy reaction because the dress and the day, everything was so magical. I just wasn't thinking. I just call out his name and you know, I was embarrassed, but, and I was also on the carousel, so I couldn't really say anything or clarify. And my friend, who was our Ketuba witness, went up to Jeff Goldblum and just said, hey, my friend in the wedding dress, because uh, he, he didn't hear me, um, was like, hey, my friend in the wedding dress, she was just looking over and, and calling out to you, you know, it's her wedding day. And he realized like, oh my God, it's a wedding. And He just, we have pictures from the photographer of the moment he realized and he waited for us to to be done with our carousel ride. And he just came up to us and said Mazel Tov and started singing Sunrise Sunset from Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) That's amazing. I could not have dreamed that this would happen. And I also could not have dreamed that I would be on Unorthodox. It is my favorite Jewish podcast. Life uh, finds a way. And I have been listening for many years. And actually, if I could share something that I haven't shared with anyone else who's contacted me. Please. I, I actually found out I was raised in the Catholic Church. And I went to Catholic school my whole life. I was the May Queen when I was growing up. I was very Catholic. And then on Col Midre, eight years ago in college, I found out that because my mother's 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 mother was Jewish, that that meant that I was Jewish in some way. So I started over many years kind of exploring my relationship with Judaism And, you know, when I met Brian, that kind of intensified because his dad's family is Jewish. And we were both, you know, uh, from mixed race backgrounds and, you know, mixed mixed cultures. But um, we started to explore Judaism together. And I actually had my date dean last week with Rabbi Sarah Luria. And that was my way of sort of affirming and, 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 and really, I wanted it to be formal. I wanted to know that there was no question that I was Jewish and I went to the mikvah and that was really the start of, of an incredibly magical and wonderful weekend. And I think even bigger than meeting Jeff Goldblum was right afterwards when we signed the ketubah and the rabbis presented me with, um, with my, you know, basically my certificate saying I was Jewish and I cried. 
I really cried. I, that's such a beautiful story. And I love, I love how, how your journey is, is so meaningfully connected to your wedding. I do have to say though, I feel like Jeff Goldblum showing up on your wedding is the ultimate, like you're officially Jewish. Like you get the form and then you also get like this very Jewish celebrity to sort of like affirm it as well. <laughs> and you go viral. I firmly, I firmly believe that these sorts of things only happen to my wife and I'm just very happy to be along for the ride. I do have to say, though, because Jeff Goldblum is part of this like new gen- new part of his career where he's just like very hot. <laughs> right. He's like well dressed. He's attractive. <laughs> And so, Brian, like, how do you feel? Like, he always was, but he always, he was sort of like, I don't know, he's transcended. He's in, like, zaddy status, right? That's, like, what he called, like, he even identifies. So, (laughs) so, Brian, like, what do you do on your wedding day when, like, Jeff Goldblum shows up? (laughs) I, I think uh, the best thing to do when uh, a star shows up in your presence is just sort of uh, shield your eyes and see the spotlight for two seconds because, I have a whole lifetime with my wife to make precious moments. What am I going to get jealous of Jeff Goldblum for 30 seconds for? I love that. That is beautiful. Sabrina and Brian, mazel tov on your wedding. It's such a beautiful story, even without Jeff Goldblum. That's the great thing. You have this amazing story and these amazing (laughs) memories. And you've gone a little bit viral. So congratulations on that, too. Thank you so much. And I will say that for me, the most magical moment was under the chuppah, sharing this with all of our friends and family. Jeff Goldblum was really just a hat on a hat. Mazel tovs. I'll just lead with Jacob Steinmetz. Big mazel tov, the first Orthodox Jew to be drafted into Major League Baseball. My favorite thing is that the, the ESPN article is like the first known Orthodox baseball player. <laughs> so there's like really like they, they keep it under wraps. There was that literally guy under those to fill always seem to be injured on Friday nights. <laughs> they never knew why. I'd like to add a mazel tov for super listener Livia Savitt Woods, who became a Jew this past weekend. In the waters off of Fire Island, she immersed in the mikveh that is known as the Atlantic Ocean and came home to Judaism. And she is already pretty much the best Jew I know. She kind of already was the best Jew I know. And now now she just has, you know, photos of herself coming out of the ocean to prove it. Um, a huge mazel tov to Livia Bat Avraham Vassara and the whole Savit Woods family, Gavriel, and also their two daughters. Um, my heart is bursting with, uh, with joy. My mazel tov is to our boy chick and a practitioner of my new favorite sport, ice hockey, of course, Adam Fox, who last week made history. He is a New York Rangers defenseman, and he was announced last week as the NHL's this season's Norris Trophy winner, becoming only the fourth player in franchise history to win this prestigious award, and I believe the first too. And of course, to Tim Israel, who last night in pouring rain under IDF-like circumstances, one seven one over the New York Bulls. Hazak, hazak. So I have a shout out. So interview you heard with Menachem Kaiser was part of this event through the Museum of Jewish Heritage. It was a Zoom event. And while I was there, while I was Zooming with Menachem, it turned out that someone on the Zoom actually runs a whole Facebook group dedicated to like these three towns in Poland, one of which Menachem's family is from, the third of which my family is from. Dude. And so basically my shout out goes to Jeffrey Simbler, who brought me into the group and by the next morning had tagged me in like 
17 Facebook posts, which where he had found all of these documents pertaining to my family because he searched like Butnik, Zaviercha and like stuff I had never seen, more information than I've ever had about my family. So I just thought it was really, really fun. Shout out to Jeffrey Simbler. Shout out to the, the Benjamin Sosnovich Zaviercha Area Research Society, which is a Facebook group he runs. So if your family is from there. It rolls off the tongue. It's just, almost enough um, to get me back on Facebook. But it does remind me that one of the things he surfaced was something that I'd seen before, which is the obituary for my grandfather, which ran in the New York Times, except that they spelled his name Milton Blutnick <laughs> and then had to issue a correction. <laughs> so anyway, shout out to Jeffrey Simbler and Power of Genealogy and Facebook. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter by emailing us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and writing in the subject line, give me the newsletter, a-holes. Newsletter, please. We often come to you live. We are going out on the road again, people. Book us now. Email producer Josh Cross. That's Cross with a K. Cross at tabletmag.com. To get swag, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. To follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sar Fremenator. Associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Artwork by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Kasha Varnishkas are lovingly made this week by super listener Nell Minow. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi David Wirtschafter of Temple Adith Israel in Lexington, Kentucky. Or as they say in Lexington, David Wirtschafter. We come to you in person from Stand Up New York on the Upper West Side. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.